0: One of the best moments of my day is telling Ethan for noses. I ask him, can you give me noses? And he'll take his little three-year-old nose and he'll touch it to mine. And that's his way of communicating. I see you. I feel you. You know, we're connected. He can't say I love you. And that's really tough sometimes, but he can show me in other ways. And so throughout the day, which happens a lot you know if I'm feeling particularly sad or lonely or bored I'll just turn to him and say hey give me noses it's like giving a high five and that's just our little way of saying you know what we're connected we're mother and we're son I see you and I feel you
1: that's Cassandra Lambert welcome to the interesting humans podcast hey everyone Welcome to the Interesting Humans Podcast. I'm Christian Ward. When Cassandra and Will Lambert's son Ethan was about two, he was diagnosed with an extremely rare genetic disorder referred to as CAND. The couple had noticed early in their son's life that he wasn't progressing physically as expected. Ethan was unable to hold a bottle himself and wasn't starting to verbalize. It took them more than two years to finally get a diagnosis of this disease so rare only about 300 people worldwide are affected. Uncovering Ethan's condition set the couple on a nearly impossible journey through the maze of hospitals and labs and testing and health insurance reimbursement that often bankrupts well-meaning families. Not to mention the emotional roller coaster of trying to raise a toddler with multiple physical challenges. Cassandra's story is one of frustration and compassion that includes a $6,000 wheelchair and jumping through the same hoops time and time again with big insurance companies and caregivers. This was true, she said, even though she had navigated social services in her job as a foster care advocate. In our conversation, Cassandra talks about how difficult it was to get Ethan diagnosed and why the diagnosis was such an important piece of information in the world of health insurance reimbursement. Cassandra also talks about how she turned to social media to find emotional support and community as a parent of a child with such a rare and often fatal progressive neurodegenerative disorder. She found others on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and connecting with other parents helped she and Will find the emotional ground to keep going. Thanks for tuning in to the Interesting Humans podcast. Let's get to it all right cassandra i am absolutely delighted to have you on interesting humans we have a little bit of a um of a history as as uh friends and you guys were also you and your husband were clients of mine um but we're not talking about that today today we're talking about uh some challenges that um you have faced um as a family and as an individual and how you guys have navigated it so um Let's let's start kind of at the beginning. You and, and your husband um, are not atypical. Uh, you went to college, you met, married, bought a home, uh, you had careers, uh, and then you had a child. And that's when the path changed for us. Um, can, can you give us a little bit of a picture of, of your life uh, kind of before what you both were doing and and bring us up to speed
0: yeah yeah um so my husband will and i did everything right we both went to college we both got college degrees that's where we actually met and then we dated for years and years we got engaged we got married we bought a house we got a golden retriever puppy (laughs) (laughs) we did it all um and then we had our only son, our only child, Ethan. He was born in spring 2018. Happy, healthy pregnancy. Um, he was full term, like everything went well. I never had any major complications. Um, my husband was working in engineering. I was working in social work and child welfare Um, working with foster children um, and adoptive families. So in 2018, when when I had my son, I left my career. Um, I had very few dreams growing up, but one of those steadfast things that I needed to do was if I was going to have kids, that I wanted to be home with them. My mom had stayed home with me and had raised me. So that really imprinted on me, like being there for my child full time. Mm -hmm. So 2018, we had our son, Ethan, Um, 2019 kind of hit and he was starting to slow down developmentally. Um, He was doing very well for the first year of life. We never had any issues. He ate well, he slept well, he gained weight as he should have. I mean, it was picture perfect. 2019, he was about a year old and I took him to his pediatrician and I told her, you know, he's starting to slow down developmentally a little bit. That just something seems a little bit off, you know. I'm looking for extra help. I'd worked in social work. I knew there were resources out there for families, and it was important to me to kind of get ahead of the game. Um, so when I saw that he was slowing down a little bit, I knew I needed resources, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, we had a full toolbox.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that was the very beginning of our journey. 2019, um, we started with earlier intervention services where they had a caseworker that came out to our house and did physical therapy with him and some occupational therapy and kind of started playing with him a little bit more to try to get him to sit up um, for a few minutes and to stand up, kind of cruise along furniture and start meeting those milestones because he really struggled physically. That seemed to be where a lot of his issues were. I noticed okay, that. I want
1: to, I want to yeah. ask you about that. So let, yeah, yeah because um, let let's go back to that time when you first got an inkling that he wasn't uh, up to his, um, his level of maturity, um, physically a a lot of parents, it seems like I, you know, I have three kids of my own. I've been around a a lot of parents and a lot of us, you know, we, um, of course, when they're born, they are the apples of our eyes and they are magnificent (laughs) and perfect. And, and, um, and then we, we begin to watch and worry even about, how they're progressing, how they're doing compared to particularly if they were around other kids they're having play dates and you begin to see, see that. What was it that you saw um, in Ethan that, that began to, to raise alarm bells for you? What did you notice?
0: He was floppy. I know that sounds hmm. really kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had he had low muscle tone he couldn't sit up on his own very well we had to prop him up with pillows um, holding his bottle he he never um, was holding his bottle up with his arms we always kind of had to hold it for him or place him on a 45 degree angle so his arms mm. were tucked down by his side um, he wasn't reaching over his head for anything that seemed to um, really be the clues for me his balance mm. was a little bit kind of funky. He'd fall over to the side, either side. So those were the big indicators for me that, you know, hey, after a couple weeks, couple months of working on that and seeing other kids his age, um, he just wasn't, he wasn't catching up. He had a really Mm. good developmental pace the first year, and then all of a sudden he really, really, really slowed down.
1: So um, how did you, how did you and, and your husband address that? How did you What were the conversations like, and what did you do during that time before you you began diving into the the deeper aspects of this?
0: You know, it was very light. It was me saying, you know, hey, I'm I'm gonna go get this checked out by the doctor. We're gonna get some resources. Uh, I was telling my husband, like, you don't need to worry about it. You just you go to work. I'm gonna have these dates with this early on person with these extra helps, extra services, Um, and it kind of turned once we started to see specialists, once Mm -hmm. our physician, our primary care physician was like, you know, we're going to start having you see a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor. I had never heard of that. Mm -hmm. Um, For those that don't know, uh, P and M, our doctor is a person or doctor that specializes in bones and muscle. So um, bone weaknesses and muscle weaknesses. So it was seeing that first specialist that kind of tipped us off to something really was was not right.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, you started seeing some of these specialists. You saw this doctor, and then when when did you get on this path of this uh, gene mutation? This idea of the uh, the genes being at the core of what was going on with Ethan.
0: It took two years to get a wow. diagnosis from beginning to end. And honestly, we are so grateful. It only took two years because there are, there are so many families out there who have adult children, um, who don't have answers to their developmental delays or their physical handicaps, or, you know, their cognitive delays, anything like that for us. And talking to other families, we are the lucky ones. We got very, very lucky in our two-year endeavor because, like I said, there are a lot of people out there that are going four, five, six years, and then they give up the fight because doctors can't find out what's wrong. They can't do the tests. The tests don't exist yet um, for those rare, rare cases. So families just give up.
1: How was, how was Ethan's condition uh, diagnosed finally? How did you zero in on his particular uh, issue?
0: Yeah. So we started with a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor and she had mentioned cerebral palsy. Um, That was the first time where I thought, whoa, okay, there's, there's a diagnosis. Cerebral palsy feels heavy. That's a label. Um, That's the first time I really, really got a sense that, there was something beyond just a little bit of a slowdown. Um, But with a cerebral palsy diagnosis, she wasn't very comfortable giving us that diagnosis yet. Uh, He had met all of the symptoms, but not the how, not the origin. A lot of CP cases come from um, birth injury or having a long NICU stay and being underdeveloped and having seizures or brain bleeds and those sorts of things. And honestly, we never had those. He never Mm -hmm. had a NICU stay. He never had any accidents or problems or traumas or anything like that. But he had a lot of the symptoms. So physical medicine sent us to another specialist. They sent us to neurology. Neurology gave us the CP diagnosis reluctantly. And I had asked and advocated for it because in the world of insurance and in the world of paperwork, the diagnosis is the gateway to funding. The diagnosis is the gateway to extra services and supplemental things that you may need, devices and those sorts of things. So I had pushed for the CP diagnosis and I had talked with them at length about why I was motivated to get this diagnosis. So she had given us this diagnosis, but she said, you know, I'm still not comfortable with why he is the way he is. So having done x-rays, having done MRIs and having done, I believe at that point in time, um, the first of a few different blood tests, everything came back normal. So she sent us to genetics and it was in genetics that we learned about whole exome sequencing and genetic testing and the expense involved and what the outcomes could possibly be. We had to go through genetic counseling and it was that whole exome sequencing test in 2020 it was october 2020 he took the test and in february 2021 is when we got the results back it's february 21 uh 2021 is when we finally got our kif 1a associated neurological disorder results back
1: and that is a mouthful kif 1a um so how would you, if you were talking to, well, you're talking to a layman, somebody who doesn't speak <laughs> medical terminology, and I know you've, do, you've dived into this much more, tell us in as plain a language as you can what KIF-1A, or canned, the condition mm-hmm. is called CAN. tell us what that is.
0: So basically canned, KIF-1A associated neurological disorder, is a genetic disorder that affects the chromosomes. So in Ethan's specific case, KIF-1A stands for the chromosome. And the chromosome's job in the the body, the brain, is to move a protein called kinesin. Think of it like a big Mack truck or a semi that moves this important protein. This Mm -hmm. protein affects motor skills and motor development and large motor movement. And so if you're going down a highway It's a lot easier to transport a load if you have a big truck. Well, in Ethan's case, the road is sticky or it's slippery or the truck hovers above the road. So the kinesin protein, the load, can't pass as easily um, down something called a ventricle is Mm -hmm. the easiest way to kind of describe it. So for Ethan, what that means in terms of symptoms is he has a lot of gross motor issues Um, Mm -hmm. He's three. He walks with a reverse walker and we're in the process of getting him a wheelchair. Um, He's nonverbal, so he has very limited voice use. Mm. Um, We're working on communication with him in that way. But going up and down stairs is difficult for him. Balance is extremely difficult for him. Um, What's interesting about CAND is it's a spectrum disorder. So there have been children who have already passed away from CAND under the age of one. But there, on the other hand, are adults living with canned who have mild mm. to moderate physical impairments, but can lead a normal life, whatever normal is.
1: That's amazing. It just depends on how much damage there was to that KIF1A chromosome at, at whatever point it was. Is that is that accurate?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And within the KIF1A or canned community, there's an even further subsect of KIF-1A patients. So Ethan's uh, modification might look different than somebody else's modification. Right. So it's right. very hard to track the symptoms and it's very hard to do the research behind it because everyone could be just a little bit different.
1: And it's fascinating. The little the, the bit I read about understanding CAND was that, that you mentioned the spectrum of of symptoms, it runs from what I saw to leg weak weakness, motor impairment, stiffness, uh, muscle coordination issues, impaired vision due to a deterioration in the optic nerve, seizures, mm-hmm. uh, epileptic seizures, uh, as well as, as, as disabilities, learning disabilities. So I imagine that doctor who said she was reluctant to give you a CP, diagnosis was was dead on because of the variety of the symptoms and I mean just imagine if um, if you didn't have genetic testing to, to nail it you know like to be able to because you could go off in a whole different direction thinking that he is and I guess treat his condition differently than than it is huh
0: yeah and it's it's very important um, that we pushed and pushed for genetic testing because canned, it's progressive and it's degenerative. Oh. So how quickly Ethan's symptoms may um, flare up or how far his abilities um, regress, no one seems to know because it is that spectrum disorder. So no one can say, oh, in five years he'll be here or in 10 years he'll be here. With cerebral palsy, The symptoms may get worse, but the damage doesn't always get worse, Mm. if that makes sense. The initial Mm -hmm. brain damage, um, the way I understand it, isn't necessarily progressive, whereas the genetics, um, the genetic issues for Ethan, it is progressive.
1: So um, hard question. Is it likely that he is going to struggle more as he ages or will he stabilize?
0: No one knows. Hmm. Absolutely no one knows.
1: That must Um, be incredibly hard.
0: I have learned a lot about what I cannot control. And this Hmm. is the ultimate I cannot control anything exercise.
1: Mm -hmm. I bet. I bet. Um, I read that. Well, one thing is that I, I just have been thinking about what's been going on um with Ethan and you guys and i'm amazed that our bodies work as well as they do for as long as they do when things don't go awry at birth or or because of a genetic mutation and then it just it, it seems almost um capricious who gets hit uh with these things i since there is a genetic component i'm wondering um and since we give our genes to our children, they each get a, they get a set from each of us. What um, what have you guys learned about about that? Do you is it something where one of you carries a similar mutation or or I know there's also a spontaneous um, case, uh, and is that apparent in what has happened with Ethan?
0: Yeah, with Ethan when we got our genetic testing done, it was testing on uh, myself, my husband and my son and neither my husband nor I are carriers. This was a completely mm. spontaneous mutation starting and ending with Ethan.
1: That is absolutely crazy to me. So every you did everything right and 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 this happened. So, um how does how does this Ethan's condition affect day-to-day life in the Lambert household? How, how does this affect life for you guys?
0: In every way imaginable, Hmm. in absolutely every way imaginable, Um, from having to carry him up and down our stairs because his bedroom's on the second floor and he struggles with stairs to not understanding what he's trying to tell us because he's nonverbal and we haven't secured his AAC device, his alternative augmentative communication device yet. Um, We're still learning how to understand him because he can't, he can't physically speak. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the only thing that hasn't been affected is his ability to eat. And I am grateful for that. We have no Mm. feeding tubes. He still retains the ability to swallow, though I know with canned kids that can be affected um, there are kids who do use a feeding tube who have lost their ability to swallow or have to have foods thickened, um, but it affects every, every aspect of our life. Nocturnally, um, Ethan suffers from uh, weird episodes. They're almost like seizures, but they haven't been caught on EEGs yet. So we have mm-hmm. rescue medication for seizures that he hasn't had yet. Um, he has muscle spasticity. So he has that usually at night. Um, but that's unpredictable as well. So I, I can't say, oh, he had a really long day today. So he's going to be restless and his legs are going to hurt tonight.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's so unpredictable. So the middle of the night's affected, the day is affected. Um, yeah, it's, it's every aspect of our life.
1: How, uh, so if you give us a picture of what a typical day, if there is a a typical day, what does it look like uh, for you guys during, for for a day?
0: Yeah. So let's say for a Monday, for example, a typical Monday um, for us right now, that looks like waking up at seven, getting him dressed. He is an early bird. He's always been an early bird. I don't know where he gets that from because it's certainly (laughs) not me. (laughs) But getting him dressed, getting him downstairs, getting him fed for breakfast, um, putting on his leg braces. So he does have leg braces, ankle foot orthotics that help him walk. They give him stability in his limbs uh, because his legs are affected with something called hypotonia. So they're kind of weak. They're weaker um, than the typical muscles Uh that you would see in a three year old. So put on his ankle foot orthotics put his special shoes over them because he does have to have extra wide um, custom made shoes to fit over the orthotics. Get get him strapped into a medical stroller. Um, That's how he gets on and off the bus. Uh, He can't do the stairs and he can't sit in the seats. So he does have a medical stroller, which actually straps to um, internally straps to the frame of the bus. So he doesn't have to transfer out of a seat. So he takes um, a wheelchair lift up the bus. The bus takes him to special education for a few hours in the morning, which is I'm, I'm just grateful for. They have services. So he gets OT, PT, and speech a uh, mm-hmm. few times a week through early special education. Uh, it's a smaller class size, again, which I'm very grateful for. He comes back home. He's usually pretty darn tired, but we push mm-hmm. through lunch and then we're off to a therapy. It could be speech therapy, it could be occupational therapy, it could be physical therapy, or it could be back-to-back therapies, which is a very long day. I um, bet we drive about thirty minutes one way, um, or forty-five, depending on the weather and the traffic. And then come back home after a hard day of work and have dinner. We're all pretty exhausted, and then we go to sleep and we do it again next day.
1: So what is um. I mean, not to diminish the challenge of getting through a day, all the therapies and all of that. Do you have a sense that you get through to him? Like, cause he still is a child. He's a little boy. Are there brighter, are there bright moments where you feel like you guys connect and there's some, I don't mean to be flippant, but even some joy because just, you know, kid to mom or kid to dad or kid to parents.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of my one of my favorite things, and favorite isn't even a strong enough word. One of the best moments of my day is telling Ethan for noses. I ask him, can you give me noses? And he'll take his little three-year-old nose and he'll touch it to mine. And that's his way of communicating. I see you. I feel you. Mm. You know, we're connected. He can't say I love you. And mm-hmm. that's really tough sometimes, but he can show me in other ways. And so throughout the day, which happens a lot, you know, if I'm feeling particularly sad or lonely or bored, I'll just turn to him and say, hey, give me noses. It's like giving a high five. And that's just our little way of saying, you know what? We're connected. We're mother and we're son. I see you and I feel you.
1: So he he knows he knows who you are. There isn't that type of of impairment or, or challenge. He knows who you are. He just can't speak to you.
0: Right, right. So he understands who mom and dad are, he understands, you know, that he has a dog and a cat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he can put his toys away, he can put things um, on top of something, you know, if I ask him to put his cup on the table. But where he struggles is understanding sequencing. So when we start to get in the more complex thought, the complex thoughts that help build onto developmental milestones, So, for example, stairs, understanding, okay, I need to pick my right foot up. I need to put my right hand on the railing. I need to push with my foot. I need to bring my left foot up. I need to move my hand up the railing. Those sequence of events is where he really struggles cognitively.
1: And that's associated with the the KIF-1A chromosome, issue. that protein not doing its job or not getting to its spot. Wow wow um you have uh this is something i wanted to talk about because it it relates to your experience in social services you guys have run into a few brick walls uh in terms of getting help getting services uh, getting the infrastructure to work uh aligned with with you guys um and and there have been there have been several times i think you've mentioned um you actually have started a a GoFundMe page to raise money for a specially equipped van um yeah. to get Ethan around and last I saw you were almost at $35,000 of the $76,000 estimated cost. So tell us a little bit about some of the um you know with, uh, with some of the roadblocks, some of the things that you have discovered that are challenging for Families, for parents in your situation?
0: Excuse me. Yeah. So, what I've come up with or come up against is astounding to me. You know, my son is three. I have not lived in this world of parenting a person with a disability or having to navigate um, the social services symptom, system as a patient or a patient advocate. Um, I really spent a lot of time on the other side as a professional. So what we've come up against is it's, it's easier to advocate for speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy to a point. You can get almost beginner level services to a point. And then when insurance starts to find out that you need services beyond just a light dusting, then you really have to start pushing for them. Um, And for as complex as his care is, and his condition is, the the social services systems that are set up are twice as complex. Um, For example, we have been pursuing an AAC device for him to help him communicate with us. An AAC device is basically a glorified tablet. It's a touchscreen with a special software program on it to help him push a picture and it will talk for him. It will speak what mm-hmm. the picture is, mm-hmm. um, again, to help us communicate verbally, if you will, back and forth. So I started this endeavor in January of 2021. And I was working with our speech therapist and a private company who was contracted by the state of Michigan who accepted Medicaid, who checked all the boxes, and who were actually the writers and producers of the software. Um, it's very well known and that we were trialing and using. For six months, I emailed and called and jumped through hoops. And at the end of the day, he needed to have two prescriptions from two different doctors signed on two different dates, a face-to-face visit. The face-to-face visit had to be before the date of the prescription um, and not after. They, he had to have a speech evaluation. He had to have, because of his physical disabilities and handicaps, mobility issues, he had to have Uh, physical therapists come in and do a write-up and make sure that he could physically use the device. He had to have occupational therapy write up a report about his finger dexterity and ability to push the keys. So after two prescriptions, a face-to-face visit, three reports, and me pushing um, this company to submit our paperwork to insurance. After six months, they finally submitted it to insurance, uh, Michigan Medicaid, (laughs) when I found out that almost all of the documentation that I had provided was expired. No one had told me about any of these deadlines or you must be submitting this application within three weeks or what have you. I relied on this company to know what they're doing and to communicate for me. Um, And that's when I realized no one is going to advocate for your child like you are going Mm -hmm. to advocate for your child. So I started the process over, you know, that was seven months of waste, wasted time, you know, where Ethan could have had a device to communicate Mm -hmm. to do something so basic, so basic, um, local communication, but so many people take for granted. So working with a separate company, a second company, I had to do all the research to see if they were contracted by Medicaid. Michigan Medicaid, I called and talked to them, they could not tell me who their vendors were to give me any sort of lead to say, okay, well, I know you're going to take the secondary insurance we have, you should check with these companies. So then I had to go out do my own research, interview my own companies, and figure out who's going to service us, who accepts our private insurance, and then who accepts Michigan Medicaid. And we are three going on four months into the process with this new company. Um, and they also still haven't provided um, an, a funding packet to our insurance for them to either decide to approve or deny it.
1: Wow. What a maze. And and <laughs> yeah. it seems like, does it seem to you like there are many moving parts that, that don't either, don't, aren't you? I mean, I'm surprised because you said that, you guys are only three years into um ethan's life and and navigating this stuff and there are families that have navigated these things for a lot longer did it surprise you that the company didn't know this and and did it have you run up against is it simple um challenges with insurance companies um where is where where's the system not not helping you
0: where to even begin with this. Hmm. You know, I think from the very first day of diagnosis, there were systemic issues. And there's there's two systems in place, right? There's the insurance, financial um, equipment piece, but then Mm -hmm. there's also an emotional support piece. Mm -hmm. And, you know, first, I want to speak on the emotional support piece, because I think that's where we see the biggest lack. And I'll, I'll come back to the financial piece. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah. But for the emotional support piece, the day we got Ethan's diagnosis, we were told on the phone, you know, that he has a progressive degenerative genetic illness with no treatment and no cure. <laughs> he is one of 300 kids, known kids in the world with this specific condition. We don't know a lot about it. Here's a website. Wow. And then I was told you'll speak with a genetic counselor to learn more. It was six weeks before we got to see our genetic counselor. So I had six weeks to ruminate over a life-changing diagnosis given to somebody that I loved the most or I I love the most. Um, I... I was appalled that there was no, you know, social worker follow up or program for parents that can talk about how to navigate these really difficult feelings and this really troubling time. You have guilt and regret and what ifs. Oh, my gosh, the what ifs. You have happiness that you got a diagnosis because you know so many families out there don't have a diagnosis. But then you have confusion because you start reading what little information there is out there. And it's all scientific research studies. My degree is in psychology. I flunked out of biology and I kicked <laughs> chemistry to the curb. I'll be the first one to admit it. Life sciences, natural sciences, are not my forte. So reading these scientific journals and trying to understand Okay, what are these scientific words? What does this mean for my family? How to actually interpret scientific data as to not skew it, knowing that there's a negative bias in our brains, so we always assume the worst to keep us safe in survival situations. You know, it's it's very easy to spiral in those early months and early years of getting a life-changing diagnosis like that. Sure. You know, what I quickly learned there is a very very prevalent issue of PTSD. We think of PTSD with uh, survivors of war, either as soldiers coming back or as prisoners or-
1: You mean for you you and your husband?
0: Yes. Yes. There there definitely is a constant state of chronic stress. And what's interesting about PTSD is it stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. When in all actuality, if you're living in a war torn country, and that's all you know, or you have a child who has complex medical history, who needs specialized care, you're living in a continuous traumatic state. So you have continuous mm-hmm. traumatic stress disorder. And mm-hmm. those are two very different things. So all of that being said, I I quickly learned that there is no support system for us parents, at least That is very well known. There are a few grassroots organizations here and there, but they're not funded. For example, um, having therapists come in or support groups or respite for kids to give the parents breaks to decompress or even just sleep. So I I very quickly learned that not that there is a failure. It's just non-existent. Hmm. The emotional support is just non-existent. So that that's a big piece but in terms of failing financially and failing with insurance Well let's amount... back
1: up for a second. Oh, I I don't want to okay. get off the subject yet because this is a this is a really important part of this how we address medicine in this in this country as sort of like pulling into a garage, putting it on a lift, looking underneath, looking for something not working or sticking uh, some computer probes onto the engine and getting an analysis. Um, but what you have talked about is something a lot deeper. This, this really affected the fabric of the family because you have, not only do you have to provide care for your son, get him to the different types of therapy and manage all that and still love him and still provide some emotional support. But heck, Cassandra, what if the tank is empty for you guys or, for you and Will, what, mm-hmm. like you said, where do you go? So, so tell us, like, what did you do? How did you guys sustain through that that time?
0: Oh, we. Looking back on it, honestly, it's it's a bit of a blur. We really sat down. I am kind of an analytical person, so I was reading everything that I could get my hands on, good, bad, or indifferent, for better or for worse, on the internet about this condition. I started reaching out to families like ours through social media. For me, it was, I need to find community because I know that I can't battle this alone, nor should I have to. Um, It's not, this particular battle is not for one person it is for whole communities. It's not even for two people. It's not for a marriage. It's for whole communities. So I really turned to social media to learn as much as I could um, and understanding my place. So my place as Ethan's parent is to keep him healthy, to keep him safe to the best of my ability. My place in this world is to help others are going through things that I'm going through so they know a little bit more. So they know what to do, what not to do, things to help, resources, um, emotions that they're going to experience. I want to teach people who are going through what I went through so they can learn and we can honestly just make it through it together.
1: So um, are you saying, so there's a, a canned community uh, on social media, uh, out there,
0: there is so canned uh, KIF1A, kif one a k i f the number one the letter a dot org is their website, and they are a nonprofit organization that is just phenomenal. Honestly, they're phenomenal because they're what of the work that they're doing um, with canned and kif one a. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased, but that being said. From working in social services and looking at the way that an organization is run and looking at how organized they are and looking at the worth of the work that they're doing, it's very, very impressive. So I got online. The website that, that we were given on the day of the diagnosis was that kif1a.org website. I learned that that website, that foundation, everything from... That organization was started by a parent who, four years prior to our diagnosis, he got the same diagnosis for his little girl. So they took it upon themselves, it's a husband and a wife, they took it upon themselves to find other parents and to start this organization and not only bring awareness, but raise money to fund something called a mouse model. So, in the scientific community, if you're looking for a cure to an incurable disease, the very first place that you start is research. To even get an eyelash batted at you from a pharmaceutical company or a research lab, you have to have a mouse model. So, they were able to raise enough money in a ridiculously short amount of time, you know, two years. to get a mouse model to raise enough money to get these genetically modified mice to be used in labs, to understand the effects of can and the possible treatments. So they went from not knowing that this disease existed to four years later, having paws on the ground for clinical research. And they are just parents. And hmm. I say just parents with the utmost respect because you and I are, are parents. They aren't lawmakers. They aren't lobbyists necessarily. Uh-huh. They aren't you know the most highest educated people with the strongest IQ. They're they're people just average like us. average people. Yeah, average yeah. people who decided to do something. Um, so all this to say, very grateful for the organization. That was the website that we were given. When um, Ethan was diagnosed. And yeah.
1: So you found community online. Did. did you, were you able to connect in, offline as well? Did you form friendships and, and be able to to share information and, and fellowship, I guess, through, through this? Because again, I, I see, I have the utmost respect for you and Will for um, just the, how different your life. Is today compared to what you pictured and, and still being so committed to doing the best you can to ensure that Ethan um, has a loving, stable environment while you're also navigating this maze of, of support.
0: Yeah. So I, I found community online. Um, I quickly learned that there are two other kids that I know of in the state of Michigan with Ethan's disease. Mm. So that's three, only <laughs> two
1: others, only yeah. two, only three in the entire state,
0: three in both peninsulas. Wow. Um, but through connecting online, I was able to meet other parents who were going through similar things, maybe different disorders, maybe, different disabilities, but who felt the same emotions, other special needs parents or other parents of children with special needs or disabilities. And I was able to learn so much and, and hopefully give so much to that community online. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the timing of all of this is absolutely awful, because a month, less than a month before COVID-19 lockdown Um, is when we got the diagnosis and Mm. all of us having immunocompromised kids or kids who aren't necessarily immunocompromised, but have co-occurring issues or other, other things going on. um, You know, we, we can't risk it. Not even once, you know, so our entire community beyond the KIF when I can community, the community of parents of disabled children, we've been in quite some lockdown for two years (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. i mean it's no going to grocery stores you know it's it's ordering everything it's it's no leaving the house for you know a quick run to the convenience store without a mask
2: Um, is that still your
1: reality today is that still how you order food online and have it delivered and and all that is that still what goes on for you guys for
0: us For our level of comfort, um, we're not attending any big events, no weddings, no birthdays, no concerts. Um, You know, we don't we try not to go to restaurants at really busy times where there might be a lot of people. Um, So we take some precautions. Um, I'm personally okay with taking Ethan into a grocery store at a not peak time, but mm-hmm. in our case, Ethan also likes to put things in his mouth and to lick mm-hmm. things. So because of that, you know, that does increase our odds of, you know, having something go catastrophic or go wrong. Um, I could so just steer-
1: I- see you steering down the middle of the aisle, <laughs> staying away from the edges so that he can't quite reach. That, but he's
0: that, also three. So that toddler sure. three-year-old does not want to sit sure. in the car. He wants to play with all of the things and of try course. all the textures. So it's it's an adventure, that's for sure.
1: Absolutely. So um, I'm so glad that you found some a sense of re- relief in some fashion to connect with others who were experiencing somewhat similar, um, similar issues. Um, and then we're going to talk, I want to talk about the financial part of this because that also... Falls into the the other side, the support network for for parents. Um, talk a little bit about, and maybe it comes up when you talk about the talk about the van. Um, I saw you posted something recently about the cost of a wheelchair as well. Like this, all all falls into all the stuff that you like. And you have a background in social services, and you've told me about how beneficial your sense of navigating the the maze of social services was has helped you your your experience um tell us tell everyone a little bit about what you did uh, what your work life was was like where you what you specialized in
0: yeah so before I became my son's full-time advocate um, and before I had mm-hmm. him I worked in child welfare so I worked in foster care and adoption. Um, doing a couple of different roles over the course of a few years. And it was, was everything from casework where you actually I actually removed children from their parents and I went to court and I petitioned the court and I testified and I tried to get family services for reunification. That was a piece of it. Um, I was a licensing worker for foster homes, so I did kind of more the regulatory stuff where I would go do home visits, make sure they had everything that they needed, that they had bought um. They abided by the state laws and policies, made sure we checked those out. Eventually I was a licensing supervisor and that's kind of where I left my position. So Mm -hmm. I helped a lot of families um, in the Ann Arbor, Washtenaw County area. And what's interesting is we had a lot of kiddos that had complex medical needs, um, Mm -hmm. sickle cell anemia or um, birth defects and genetic conditions. And with mott being in ann arbor um, i really got to experience their system and how they did things Um, and working in social services for any social services worker out there you are one of the most resourceful people that you will ever meet
2: Mm -hmm. where you
0: can google anything and you can figure it out whether it's held together by wd-40 and duct tape you will figure it out and so it was those years of trying to make things work and trying to find resources And pushing for answers to questions, um, whether I wanted them or not, that really lent to my ability to more easily navigate the world that I live in now.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've mentioned to me, just think if you did not have that same experience, how bewildering. I mean, you were you were bewildered a little bit as you were. And the fact that you had this experience certainly helped you uh, maybe get up to speed a little bit more quickly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think there's almost a password, you know, when working with the system. Uh, I what say do you the mean? system. So if you're calling to check up on something, or if you're um, asking questions to a provider, there are certain things that you want to do. You want to ask their name and make sure that you know their name. You want to document the phone call or conversation. You want to ask them why they can or cannot do something. Um, You know, you never want to really leave a stone unturned. And I think, I think understanding that in social services really made a difference in, like I said, in my real life.
1: Because you had to document everything when you were doing your work, you had to document everything.
0: Yeah. And, and right. to be organized, um, to know mm-hmm. names and dates and mm-hmm. phone numbers and diagnoses and policy. I mean,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, the the policy manual for insurance or for Medicaid or for different health systems is thousands and thousands of pages long. Um, you know, being able to Google that and use control F to find, you know, find a keyword, find cerebral mm-hmm. palsy, find wheelchair, and And understanding that those those resources are out there, you just have to find them um, makes a huge difference.
1: Um, so let's talk about the financial picture because you've mentioned a couple things. One was early on, you were talking about the necessity to have the right diagnosis so that the insurance company would would reimburse. so that that is one aspect. and And also, again, I want to talk about this van. And your latest dilemma with the wheelchair. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Wheelchair costs something like 8,600 bucks or 7,600 bucks. Is that what I saw? Is that
0: So for Ethan's specific manual wheelchair, um, it is not a battery powered electric wheelchair mm-hmm. with a joystick or anything fancy. Um, a basic pediatric wheelchair for him to use day to day, excuse me, a 600 and... No, six thousand four hundred and forty nine dollars.
1: Okay. okay, and um, so I'm guessing that the wheelchair, the van, um, and other things, you guys have spent a good bit of your own money. You also spent probably a good bit of time. Let's call it negotiating with the insurance company for coverage. T- tell us about. Tell me about what you were going to say earlier about the financial side of of this.
0: Yeah. So. You know we're a very I would say a very middle of the road family. We have a nice house. We live in a nice county with nice school system, you know that sort of thing. We're what I would middle consider, class what I would consider middle class. You know that being said, these costs of these wheelchairs or these costs of these vans are absolutely insane. And it comes from a lack of regulation and a lack of price transparency.
1: So tell me about that.
0: For example, pharmaceutical drugs, specialty drugs, um, non-generic drugs, hospital clauses and pharmaceutical privacy policies, they don't release or publish the numbers of how much something is going to cost.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and that that doesn't make sense, because in a market, if you think about business, you look left and look right to figure out how sure. you're going to price competitively. Mm hmm. And I understand the business sense, but if you're not looking left, you're not looking right to price competitively, then you can price whatever you want. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: medical care and medical devices and prescription drugs, these are all things that keep people alive most of the time or give them a better quality of life. Mm -hmm. So the population that actually partakes in these things is desperate and will pay and will do whatever it takes. Um, so insurance companies I would argue almost prey on that. how you
1: know, many that medi- said, how many medicines is does uh, does your son have to take
0: right now? He is on one rescue medication. Um, mm-hmm. it's diazepam for seizures, and mm-hmm. luckily, diazepam is not a super expensive drug. Mm-hmm. You know that being said, I have a friend who has a disabled son and he takes a, um, I can't remember what they call it, but it, it's a single uh, not mass market drug. It's a specialty mm-hmm. drug. Mm-hmm. He takes it four times a year and it costs, I want to say over a hundred thousand dollars every injection. Whoa. Four times a year. It's, <laughs> Insane. Just let that sink in for a minute. Mm -hmm. Your child needs $400,000 worth of medication a year. Yeah. You know, their wheelchair, because he is completely wheelchair dependent, so he does have a power chair, cost $120,000 for a child. I think he's Mm -hmm. eight, maybe. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely insane. It is absolutely insane. I recently came across a study. Um, It's the National Economic Burden of Rare Disease Study. So this was a study that was published in, I believe, 2020, 2021, so very recently, by an organization that advocates and helps spread awareness about rare disease. So if you're talking about a rare disease in the United States, a rare disease is a disease that affects 250,000 people or less every year. So we're talking about, you know, new diagnoses. Mm -hmm. There are over 7,000 recognized rare diseases in the United States. So think about those numbers for a minute. Okay, 7,000 individual different rare diseases. So this Burden of Rare Disease study looked at, 379 of those 7,000 known rare diseases. In one year, those 379 rare diseases cost the United States $1 trillion. Wow.
1: 379 diseases cost Cost a trillion dollars.
0: In 2019 alone. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about different things. We're talking about, you know inpatient and outpatient care so the direct hospitalizations we're talking about prescription medications we're talking about medical equipment like my son's wheelchair but we're also talking about forced retirement we're talking mm-hmm. about absenteeism where the mm-hmm. caregivers absent mm-hmm. from the workplace or presenteeism when employees cannot fully function in the workplace mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. their brains just elsewhere you're you're talking about reduction in company and community participation And non-medical and uncovered healthcare costs like necessary home modifications, a Mm -hmm. stair lift. You're talking about a whirlpool bathtub where you don't have to step over the edge. Transportation and education costs. So transportation costs, I take my son to therapy three or four times a week. You know, that's hundreds of miles Mm -hmm. from where we live um, Mm -hmm. every month. Paid daily care. So if you have a nurse come in, or if you have a, a respite caregiver come in so you can get some housework done, or you can get some employment work done. And then healthcare service is not covered by insurance. So experimental treatments, medicinal foods, if you have a ketogenic mm-hmm. diet because of mm-hmm. your medical condition. 370- it's a hairball,
1: Cassandra, it It's a hairball. It's massive. <laughs> it's massive.
0: It's, horrifying and i had no idea that this existed this problem existed that it was so costly one trillion dollars one trillion dollars in one year Year. alone i did not know this problem existed until i became part of the Mm -hmm. population it affected and that was three years ago
1: so um any ideas on fixing it because i you know we have to we have to the reality is is that a company is in existence to turn a profit for its shareholders. So you wouldn't—I know you wouldn't argue that a company, because I know your husband, for example, has been self-employed and um, in the past and and wants to earn some money. So he wants to make a profit after he covers expenses all the way up to a large company. We want drug companies to make enough money to be able to invest in research to do. That so I know you wouldn't argue against profit for almost any company. So, but how do we begin to fix it? What do you think are the what are the uh, the chinks in the armor, the places where you would break it open and, and begin to, to to work? Have you come up with any ideas?
0: I think the very first place to start is talking about it. Is mm-hmm. is transparency? What's interesting about this economic burden study? is if you read it, which I I hope everyone does, it's a very interesting, well-written study.
1: We'll put a link in the show notes.
0: Yes, please do. Um, If you read it, it it talks about its inability to pull data from other research studies or specific populations because no one's done the research on it. So no Hmm. one's even talking about these problems. No one's talking about KIF-1A-associated neurological disorders' impact on... Family
2: finances.
0: Mm-hmm. A, rinse and repeat for seven thousand different diseases. So I think the first step is talking about talking about health care and talking about medical coverage and insurance and finances in a healthy way. I think people are quick to say, "Oh, universal health healthcare care this and my political beliefs that." But I think there needs to be an open space for discussions surrounding the actual numbers, Mm -hmm. and to, to take a step back and and divorce the emotion behind it. And I know it's very, very difficult when talking about politics and health and people's livelihoods to kind of take that emotion piece out of it. But, you know, from a logical standpoint, it should not cost the United States a trillion dollars in 2019. Mm -hmm. And a trillion is a big number. Why aren't we talking about that? But we can talk about and I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on cancer not at all,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: we can talk about, you know, pink is for breast cancer and we can talk about all of these other footholds in society that other organizations have gotten, but we can't talk about these bigger issues or these
2: mm-hmm.
0: these issues that no one seems to have shed light on. So I think the very first step is to talk about it, is to do your mm-hmm. research, to understand understand the economic impact. What does that mean? So after talking about it, I think there needs to be complete transparency, Mm -hmm. you know, from us as, as caregivers, it's hard to talk about finances. I don't care who you are. If you are an adult, it's, it's socially um, unacceptable in certain, and yeah, in certain generations to talk about finances, good, bad, or indifferent. And I think we need to remove that veil and, and say, okay, this wheelchair, Cost $6,449. This van that we're fundraising for when I got a quote last summer cost 75300 No, $75,033.20 for a 2021 Honda Odyssey with a wheelchair ramp, $41,000 for a chassis, $29,990 for the modification for a wheelchair ramp. Hmm. Cost $30,000 to modify a vehicle. So I think we need to have complete transparency when talking about the cost of caregiving.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think we need to recognize the non financial component. So, yes, mm-hmm. it is expensive to hospitalize a person. You have personnel, you have overhead, you have prescription drugs, you have this, that. But what about those lost wages?
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, what about the emotional toll? What about? all of the other things um, that that we just don't talk about that that takes a toll on people forced retirement people leaving the workforce to take care of their disabled children um, or their family members with complex medical needs it goes both ways both geriatric and pediatric Um, there's an overlap there with people having to leave the workforce so i think talking about that you know is huge and and having that transparency, and then from the drug companies, you know, as as drug companies cre- create these drugs and do these research uh, studies, what is the cost? What is the cost of these research studies? Why does it cost that? What is the markup for these prescription drugs? What is the markup for this durable medical equipment? Okay, if if my pediatric wheelchair base, you know, the very stripped down version of this wheelchair costs. I think about three thousand dollars. How did we jump from three thousand dollars to six thousand dollars? Where's that extra three thousand dollars going? okay? Why Because you this put part... two
1: rubber grips on the on the up, <laughs> right. upper part the hand so you can push it those those are costing it uh, three grand
0: right right and and you know that's one of the reasons i'm very very active on social media and i have taken upon myself to try to be as transparent as I can as i 'm comfortable with um, putting out what these costs were. So, I actually, you referenced it earlier with the cost of this wheelchair. I actually took screenshots of the write up that we got from the wheelchair seating company so people can see okay, the base cost of this little wave click wheelchair is $2,600, but the stroller handle is $330. Mm-hmm. Why is a stroller handle $330?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, why are Anti-tip rear rear wheels, $145. These wheels are literally the size of roller skate wheels, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're to keep him from flipping over. So they're very important. Don't get me wrong. It is a safety issue. Why is it $145?
1: What have you talked to the companies uh, about some of these and, and done some horse trading negotiations saying, well, I can't afford that. Would you take X? Is that possible in this arena?
0: When I tell you if I could duplicate myself and find the time in the day to chase somebody and get them on the phone, then ask them the hard questions and then ask them about policy and where I can find it so then I can reference it, I would absolutely love to do that. But I would do that for a wheelchair. And then I would do that for a talker device. And then I would do that for a van. And then I would do that for labor surrounding the van. Um... Not it enough just, hours in a day. No, no. And somebody's yeah. somebody out there listening to this, they're gonna hear it, they're gonna want to do something. And I encourage people to really start investigating drug companies, start investigating insurance companies, start investigating durable medical equipment companies and start reading about this because collectively, one brain, you know, might not be able to do much, but collectively these brains can come up with a better way to do things. Maybe there's an up and coming engineer that can make parts cheaper Mm -hmm. and of higher quality and faster driving down the costs. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's my hope is, is that there are young people out there who are innovative, who can think outside the box and who don't necessarily want to do things traditionally. Um, but that's, that's a whole different argument for a whole different day.
1: Well, 3d printing, we could start doing 3d printing of all these, all these devices. Um, just a fascinating journey, uh, both the personal part and then <clears throat> some of the bigger issues with our with our society. Um, how are you holding up right now? That you know this, the the level of challenge, the daily challenge that you have. How are you doing?
0: That's a really good question, and thank you for asking. I am okay, and I say that in a truly okay way and not a, a, a i on fine. Thanks for asking. You know, last year was really a hard year for us. Um, it was the, the kind of second year of being locked in our house. Um, mm-hmm. We only have one car. So my husband uses it for work when he doesn't work from home. So I spent a lot of time in the house. And I really learned a lot about myself. Um, I learned that I am not okay sitting on the sidelines. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: I learned that I missed having a career. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I learned about Ethan and in his likes and dislikes and his condition and ways to help him and ways to comfort and nurture him. and And I wouldn't change that for the world. Um, I am. I am okay. It's really interesting going on this journey because there are days that are really good. There are days that the sun's shining and you're hitting milestones in therapy, or um, your child's happy, or something got approved through insurance. And it was like, ah, this project is finally done. We got the okay. The ink is dry. That's a win. And then there are soul crushing days. There are days where you're up all night and your child has an ear infection and they still. have to go to therapy or you have to cancel appointments and you know, you get a phone call that insurance has denied a wheelchair because he's primarily going to use it outside of the house. And you wonder what logic could that ever Mm -hmm. follow anyone ever, you know, and then you have a little mental breakdown for a day where you're like the whole world's against me. All I do is fight everyone for everything, all of the resources, all of the time, I don't know what I'm doing. There's no manual, you know, but the sun still comes up the next day. Mm -hmm. You still have someone to care for. You still have so many opportunities and so many possible positive outcomes to come of something. Um, So I've, I've really learned to ride the roller coaster that is managing this life and, grief and everything in between. Um, I actually wrote a poem, um, accidentally, and I would love to read it if you're okay with it. Oh, please do. Yes. Um, One of my New Year's resolutions or my New Year's word for this year for 2022 is to narrate, is to really to use my voice in a, a way for good, in a way for advocacy. So I was attempting to write an article that will hopefully be published later this month, but I accidentally read a poem instead. Um, so it's a little bit, um, I won't say it's a downer, but it's about grief. <clears throat> and I, I don't have a name for it because I don't really like titling things. Let us hear Excuse it. Me, but here it is. Grief is sneaky, like a child with candy. It waits until your back is turned to take a piece. Grief is evolving, like water in the air. It may seem frozen, gliding through the sky, but a heavy downpour is on the horizon. Grief is lonely, like the last light switched off. It feels empty and cold and silent. The absolute last worst call. Grief is honest, like a dress two sizes too small. Panicked, sweating in the dressing room. How will I get out? Grief is universal, like the wind blows. Let's not forget what unites us when the squall descends. So when I wrote that, I was in the pit of grief. And I liken grief to riding a boat almost. You know, there are sunny skies and there are storms. And what I don't think a lot of people understand is that Grief can be more than just a person passing away or a physical loss. Grief for us has looked like not becoming grandparents. You know, I'm 30 Mm -hmm. something and with Ethan's genetic condition, there's a 50% chance that he'll pass it on if he ever gets to the point of having a relationship.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: It's the loss of what parent what I thought parenting was going to look like, what I thought my parent like my family was going to look like, um, mm-hmm. how easy I thought life was going to be. And so I, I think there's a lot to be said about grief and how it affects each and every one of us.
1: That is, um, it's deeply thoughtful. And those are actually some questions I was going to to pose, um, but you, but you address them. And it, this is not I don't want to um, make a show of your situation because this is also a very very difficult private matter I mean with you've been really great about sharing your your ordeal navigating this but I also imagine as a family you just would like to be a family a normal family and have a robust healthy happy three-year-old kid who you know, kicks the ball in the yard and, <laughs> and goes to school. So I can't imagine um, how challenging it is. Again, and you also mentioned the fact that you guys have navigated this pretty much alone. Like it, there wasn't, mm-hmm. hasn't been this as much of a support network as, as we would like. Um, is there anything else about your life uh, with Ethan that you would like to share or talk about here?
0: You know, I think it's important to remember that two things, you know, first thing is that Ethan is still a person. I think a lot of people see diagnoses. I think a lot of people hear progressive, degenerative, no treatment, no cure, and their brain automatically goes to the worst of the worst. And honestly, that's where my brain went when I got the phone call. I think it's important that people learn and people realize that You know, when learning health information about somebody, whether it's a neighbor, a friend, a child, you know, that person is still a person. They still have feelings. They still have intellect. They still have likes and dislikes. They still have a soul. You know, people are more than what their label is, more than their diagnosis. You know, and secondly, I think it's important that that people understand there's no such thing as normal and there's no such thing as average. And so when you were talking earlier, just a moment ago about. You know, wanting a normal life with a little kid kicking a ball and, you know, easy breezy. I don't have anything to compare that to. You know, Mm -hmm. I I only have my one son. I don't know Mm -hmm. what it's like to have the average family. And so this is just day-to-day life for us. Mm -hmm. And it does look different. And sometimes it is harder. Um, but You know there are benefits too some days are easier you know Uh i don't have a kid that talks back
1: (laughs) (laughs) boy is that the ever optimistic wow you have
0: to you have to use humor (laughs) and you have to find the silver lining because you know what nobody makes it out alive
1: sure um hey tell everyone where they can find you on the interwebs on social media
0: yeah. So I'm most active on Facebook. So my Facebook profile is facebook.com slash Cassandra dot Lambert. And I'm sure it's going to be in your show notes because no yes. one can spell Cassandra correctly. Um, you can also find us at Help Hope Live. That is the um, nonprofit that is hosting Ethan's fundraiser. So mm-hmm. I have all of our news articles, all of our videos. And I'm constantly updating that with progress notes through our fundraising endeavors and a little bit about where we're at with different insurance issues and and what have you. And that'll also be in the show notes. You can just click through that.
1: All right. Well, I want to thank you again for sharing your story um, of your wonderful son and your your great family. Um, How are you doing?
0: We're good. You know, everyone's Happy and healthy, and any time that I can say someone's happy and healthy, especially sure. if they're a three-year-old, it's a good day.
1: <laughs> right. I thought you were talking about Will. <laughs>
0: you know, if I can say he's happy and healthy, <laughs> right? I hear some. I hear some screaming downstairs. Tonight's mom's night off. That, that's oh. a. That was a huge thing for our family. Is having uh, each parent yeah. has a night off every week where they're not responsible for anything, not right. responsible for dinner or coming home on time, so, right? Or picking up after the dog, absolutely nothing. And so tonight is my mom's night off. So I hear some uh, daddy fun time downstairs with dinner and hopefully take a bath here pretty soon.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you again, Cassandra. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on Interesting Humans. I really appreciate your time and your your vulnerability um, in our conversation. I really wish you guys the best.
0: I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me.
1: That's my conversation with Cassandra Lambert. I hope you enjoyed meeting this extraordinary woman and hearing a piece of her story. I'll include links in the show notes as to where you can follow Cassandra's story on the interwebs, as well as to the Help Hope Live Foundation, which is helping Will and Cassandra raise up to $77,000 for a specially equipped van that would allow them to get their son Ethan to his various occupational rehabilitation therapies as well as to school. As always, I am deeply grateful you stopped by Interesting Humans and allowed me into your ears and your head. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, I would deeply appreciate a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to reach me, you can find me on the interwebs at christianrward.com or on Instagram and Facebook. Background intro and outro music is graciously provided by Wild, so please check her out. More great conversations ahead on Interesting Humans. I invite you to tune in in the future. Until soon, this is Christian Ward. Make it a great day.